independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. Green Dreamer is an independent podcast supported directly by listeners like you. And this allows us to critically and honestly cover anything and everything, and also explore narratives often sidelined by mainstream outlets. So if you're learning from or inspired by the show, we need you. And we're counting on your support starting at just a tip of $2 a month at patreon.com slash green dreamer. We don't want to put up a paywall though. So if you can't afford to give anything right now, please don't worry at all. Just take Take good care of yourself and your loved ones and enjoy the show. And if you've already contributed, share the show or written us a five-star review. All this helps so much and we are so grateful. Thank you. I think that large dams have been a way for nations to assert to their, or empires before that, to assert their dominance. Large dams are often associated now with like proving you're the biggest and the best. In this episode of Green Dreamer, we're speaking with Karen Piper, the author of Cartographic Fictions, Left in the Dust, The Price of Thirst, and a memoir called A Girl's Guide to Missiles. Her interests are water architecture, climate change, weapons, development history, creative nonfiction, and world literature. And she currently teaches in the English department at the University of Missouri. Karen, thank you so much for joining me here on the show. I'm really excited to be in conversation with you. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So the primary topic I'd love to explore with you today is water and the conflicts and injustices surrounding it. But I'm curious to hear a little bit about your background and what really crystallized your own interests and inquiries on the subject. I grew up in the Mojave Desert in California at a weapons development center. The base was called China Lake. And I think because of that, I was always fascinated with both war history and water, because when you grow up in the desert in California, it's very different than when I lived in Missouri, and you don't have a sense of water scarcity. In the California desert, you're very aware that you need water to stay alive because it's so hot. So that fascinated me how California developed and moved around its water in order to have people move around within the state and even across the country. So that's how my interest in water got started. And then I went on. So in graduate school, I got a master's degree in environmental studies, and I wrote my thesis about LA's water, which turned into my book, 
left in the dust. And then I was also interested in mapping, which goes along with organizing territory the way that water is used to organize territory. So that led to my, uh, I got a PhD in comparative literature, but it's in a department that's very theoretical, and I focused on mapping. And that led to my other book, Cartographic Fictions at the time. And then that led into my next book, which was called The Price of Thirst, where I looked at globalization and water. And I had the opportunity to travel around the world and talk to activists around the world, looking at alternatives for the current water problems that we're having and global water shortages. And then finally, my my last book was my memoir, which is A Girl's Guide to Missiles, which goes back to a much more personal story about my connection with the Mojave Desert and what it was like to grow up in a city that was built for war. So how did I process those two things together and how it made me sort of the person I am today? Well, oftentimes today, discussions around water scarcity revolve around more, I would say, individualistic and consumerist understandings of it, that it might be a matter of people and households or even farms and manufacturers just using too much water and therefore leading to scarcity. But in your book, you trace the modern day water crises to their colonial origins. So why has it been critical for you to contextualize our current water conflicts and issues around scarcity with the colonial history? That's an excellent question, because I think you're right. There has been a focus on individual responsibility. And I think that comes with its own problems because it avoids the much larger picture And water is something that moves across borders. You can't confine it to like one individual or even one country, though people try. So I was interested more in the kinds of connections that water creates between people and how people negotiate those connections. So traveling the world, I was able to see the way that water had been harnessed for colonial enterprises and the way that water systems had been built for those enterprises and how different that was from indigenous ways of looking at water. So it was the contrast between those two things that was really fascinating to me. And I would say more than anything, what struck me was this idea of modern water architecture, I would call it, which is that something that emerged in the 20th century, which is just the idea of, you know, dams and reservoirs and pipes and how this like modern water architecture has spread now throughout much of the world. And it's very ugly. (laughs) It's unappealing. And it also is intended to hide water so that even some of the, you know, the reservoirs are off limits because they don't want them to be polluted. The pipes are all underground. And so we don't have the daily experience of seeing how we live with and are impacted by water every day. And I see that as a kind of loss. So when I went to other countries, like in India, for instance, they have this massive water 
tank system where these gorgeous, elaborate, they call them tanks, but they're holes in the ground that have beautiful steps going down into them and sometimes houses built over them. And they would store water underground that way. But you see that the beauty designed in terms of living with water and having it be something visible. And so what I really became interested in is like the diversity of how human beings have interacted water and through time. In The Price of Thirst, you share how dams and water diversion systems built in the colonial times for the elites have transformed post-colonialism, but nevertheless perhaps still uphold a similar power dynamic, just with power in different hands, at least at the surface. So what can you tell us about this transition of power from colonial water systems to modern-day corporate privatization and even water banking, and the broad range of issues that all of this has sparked for our world today? Well, when the British came into India, for instance, they wanted to like totally remake India in the way that Europe looked anywhere they went to the United States. You know, it's like you want to remake the water world into something that looks familiar back home. And so you can only do that by harnessing water. But because of the cheapness of concrete, first it was just through dirt canals. They just moved water around. But then as concrete became cheap and was used as an alternative, that just spread throughout the world as the main way of dealing with water. So the colonizers, when they went into Africa, were building massive dam and reservoir systems. It eventually spilled over into China, who is a country that is now still building massive dam and reservoir systems. So in the end, I think it's more this European way of thinking about water that just took over the whole world ultimately. So it was colonial, but then it spilled into the post-colonial environment, if that makes sense. And now it's just a regular part of modern life in much of the world. Hmm. We had discussed on the show before about how a lot of modern day ideologies around environmentalism are ultimately rooted in a colonial worldview of separation. So a separation between nature and humans. And I think this colonial way of looking at water kind of takes a similar story as well in that water, as you mentioned, is stored in dams and then expedited to their intended destinations in pipes in a way that really separates the water from their biological water cycle within the biosphere, where they would be maybe cycling in a similar path, but be able to enrich life along the process rather than being confined inside these pipes. That really takes it away from being able to enrich life in the ecosystem. And so with this, I'm really curious to deconstruct the topic of dams a little more because it feels like we we take it as something that is just how the water system should be. It's been so normalized. And I've wondered if they're truly necessary to ensuring that everyone has access to fresh water. Because as we mentioned, people and more than human animals and plants have managed to meet our water needs before prior to the freely flowing water and the active biological water cycle being disrupted, diverted, and dammed up. 
which then again withholds that water to the landscapes that rely on them. So how might we understand dams specifically through the lens of power and control rather than understanding it as a way to ensure that people have access to having the water that they need? That's an excellent question. And that's something I've pondered while I was writing The Price of Thirst. I remember asking environmental activist in the Himalayas, uh, his name Sundarlal Baguna, what is the alternative to large dams? And he said small dams. And I think that that's one possibility in cities in or villages in India, they are rebuilding ancient small dams that supply villages, but also are incorporated more with the wetlands in the region and aren't as separated from from people. And I think that large dams have been a way for nations to assert to their, or empires before that, to assert their dominance. Large dams are often associated now with like proving you're the biggest and the best, which is sort of how China ended up building the Three Gorges Dam. It's like, I'm going to fix the water problem for the whole country with this giant dam. And so you have these large projects that help promote a certain world leader. And those promises is what gets them into power. So that was my problem. That's one of my problems. I mean, there's so many problems with large dams that I could talk about. It's like large dams are, I think of them as large water evaporators. They just, you know, they lose so much water just by evaporation. And when I traveled the world, I was struck by how many countries store water underground instead. Like I said, in the Indian tank system, that's a lot of that is underground water storage. In a lot of the Middle Eastern countries, they've built these elaborate tunnels that take water from the mountains and they flow to the cities, but it's all underground because they don't want evaporation. So there's just so many things that we could do differently, both to save water, but also to live with it more visibly. And the primary conversations in climate change has largely evolved around greenhouse gases and carbon emissions. But really, water, the water cycle plays a huge role in regulating the climate. So I also wonder about how the ways that we've altered the water cycle with these colonial water systems may actually have impacted and aggravated the climate crisis as well. That's another thing I learned as I was traveling the world and talking to all these activists. And one of the issues with dams is that as climate change is occurring, those dams weren't built for climate change. And so what is happening now is that dams are getting filled up. I mean, dams already have a lifespan because they tend to fill with silt and they have to be continually dredged. And sometimes you just can't dredge that much silt anymore. So they can fill up. But the other thing is with climate change, there's less snowpack and more water flowing into these dams. And so dams are reaching their limits. And I see that happening again and again. We saw it with the Oroville 
water crisis in California where that dam they were afraid was going to break and they had to evacuate people. And just last year in China, the Three Gorges Dam was at risk of overtopping. It was near its capacity. And so what happens then is that they will start releasing water from these dams. But when you release the water, you flood people downstream. So China had to evacuate 300,000 people to release enough water to keep the dam from collapsing. And sometimes China has been accused of releasing water without even warning people. For instance, in India, do they have a responsibility to tell people in India if they're doing water releases since that's not their country? So it brings up all these cross-border issues. It also brings up the issue of migration because migration is something that is a huge consequence of climate change. People are moving from drier regions to wetter regions. And I was often troubled that migration isn't framed in that way. Many things that are are caused by climate change aren't framed as being caused by climate change. Just another example, COVID. COVID, I read an article recently that said that it came from bats who were migrating further south than usual, which caused this mixing of viruses. And so scientists have known for for a long, long time that new diseases would emerge in the face of climate change. But we don't hear COVID talked about that way. We hear about it in terms of, you know, was it in a lab or not a lab? The primary idea around water scarcity that has stuck with me from past conversations I've had here is that water can be understood as a verb rather than a noun. And this I learned from Judith D. Schwartz of Water in Plain Sight, where it actually it helps us to remember that we should see water as water processes and the water cycle, which is active, rather than just through water consumption, implying that it goes away because water merely transforms and it doesn't really get used up and disappears. So we can certainly misplace water or pollute water or disrupt the water cycle in the biosphere that is a complex water filtration system in of itself that has been going through billions of years of research and development, but basically water just, it doesn't disappear or go away. So I wonder how we hold this reality of the inevitable chemistry and biology of life on earth with the water that is still here while reckoning with the very real issues of inequitable water access and perhaps systemically constructed forms of scarcity. Ah, I really like that idea of water as verb. I hadn't heard that, but that's how I that's how I tend to think of it. It's this active moving force that's always changing. 
But in terms of equity, that's one of the the big issues that coming back to this idea of migration I was talking about before, as people are migrating, they're often crossing borders. And as they cross borders, people see that as a problem, you know, as instead of seeing this as the larger picture, like this is what is happening to the planet, we have to we have to come up with ways to think about how we are going to deal with what is happening to the planet instead of just setting up walls against people. So with climate change, another thing that is happening in terms of equity is that countries are building large dams to keep water from flowing into neighboring countries. And so that contributes to these massive crises and immigration crises. So for instance, with Syria and Turkey, Syria was in the midst of an enormous drought, which led to civil war there and led to massive migration into Turkey. But there's also the component of Turkey was building massive, massive dams that were cutting off water to Syria and to Iraq. So you can't you can't cut off the water to other countries without expecting those countries to come to your country. People will follow water no matter where it is. And so we have to think of ourselves as, you know, a migratory species in many ways rather than people that should be separated from each other. Right. And I think really understanding the world through the lens of water helps us to remember how much of our reality as we know it today are social constructs. For example, borders is a huge example of that because water does not know borders. (laughs) And policies that one nation state has in regards to how they control and manage water will ripple off to having effects on neighboring communities and countries as well. So Ultimately, it reminds us that we live on a shared planet. And something that I've noticed you do, because I do the same thing, is that you often put development in quotation marks. And to go further, you share how development often has been a direct substitute for the word colonial. For example, how the field of colonial economics became development economics, while still essentially being about the same ideologies. So what do we need to challenge in regards to the whole concept of development and whose values it centers? And by extension, as we look ahead, should the same questions be raised when people talk about things like, quote unquote, sustainable development? Ooh, that's an interesting question. Probably so. I mean, what bothers me about the term development, although I realize there's no good terms for talking about these issues, but we used to use the term third world countries, you know, because it was a Cold War term from the first world, second world, and then everything else was third world. Second world was Russia, Soviet Union. And so then international institutions switched to the term underdeveloped countries or developing countries. And I think the problem I have with that is it it seems it puts them in a position of inferiority and it doesn't respect the long history of development that these countries have had that has been, you know, like for instance, India had this massive empire and and developed so many different 
arts and knowledge and everything while Europe was still in the dark ages. So, you know, it's just how do how do you think about these chronologies? And it's not, I think, the way that the international institutions tend to think of it now is just that part of the world is still developing to become like us. And so become like Europeans. And I just think that's an unfair way of looking at it. I don't know what the alternative would be. And sustainable development just falls into that. The term, you're right, just falls into that same trap of thinking of developing. But, you know, words, those things, I can live with that. It's like whatever works, but it always has kind of bugged me. Yeah. I mean, I do think that these terminologies should constantly be challenged because they center certain perspectives and values while dismissing other ways and other other ways of being and looking at the world. So and especially in terms of water, the idea of development comes in when people see these sorts of more quote unquote advanced systems of dams and water pipes as being more advanced and more civilized than the water cycle in of itself that is existing in the biosphere. And by challenging the idea of development and this colonial water system being more advanced, you also are able to unlearn these ideologies of like, this is the way that things should be as humanity progresses. Mm-hmm. But It really forces us to look at what happened, the impacts of adopting this sort of water system that has separated water from these living ecologies where they historically have been. You know, how much is that progression really regression anyway? Because look where it's gotten us. It's gotten us into climate change. And climate change is the great unmaking of the world as we know it. So we're going to have to learn to deal with that. So it's like humans always think they're in control and making things better, but maybe we never have been. Yeah. And in terms of solutions, there are increasingly more discussions on desalination technologies as a way to ease the freshwater Mm -hmm. insecurity that people are facing. What has been your take on how this either truly can lead to a democratization of access to fresh water in the immediate term, or whether it may just be a repetition of upholding the same pattern of a monopolization of power and control away from the people in ways that might create a new set of problems and with a new reliance on technologies, make it even more out of reach for the most vulnerable. I think that desal is like a Band-Aid but it's not a big enough Band-Aid. So yes, you can, in an emergency, create a certain amount of water for drinking, but you're not, it, it takes too much power. So then you get into the, the same old question of what are you using to power desal plants? And will that make things worse if we're consuming all this power to make water? Will it make climate change worse? So, you know, I've heard some talk about solar power diesel plants, which would be good, but I can't see that supplying enough water for everything that needs water. So it certainly, it doesn't address the root causes of the water crises that we have today. And even as a temporary band-aid, it's not it can't really be scaled because of how 
energy and resource intensive it is. Yeah. Yeah. I went to a desal plant in Aruba and I was like, Ooh, it was an one of the old oil powered desal plants, you know, and that's polluting the air like any, you know, there was this sort of gray black smoke around and it's like any oil plant, right? So why do we want to build more oil plants now? Mm. And also they have, uh, uh, desal plants have byproducts. One of the biggest problems is salt. So you take all the salt out of the water. What do you do with the salt? And the salt, that salt, it's, it's just a waste product. And so where are you going to store it? And is it going to migrate around and then pollute other things? Mm. Some some plants are just dumping it in the ocean, but then you have this influx of all this extra salt that's dangerous for fish. And so, you know, that's another problem. Yeah, lots of considerations. Well, the synopsis of your book starts with, there's money and thirst, reads a headline in the New York Times. The CEO of Nestle, purveyor of bottled water, heartily agrees. It is important to give water a market value, he says in a promotional video, so we're all aware that it has a price, end quote. Strangely, there is truth in that we need to value our quote-unquote natural resources more, although valuing something is not synonymous with commodifying, let alone privatizing, profiteering, and controlling it. And that nuance and looking at value and abundance through different angles and centering different people's values and interests has been the bulk of this conversation. And if we're being real, things are looking grim as we learn about all the conflicts and wars that are being sparked because of our water crises. But you've also seen incredible resilience from communities pushing back against those attempting to monopolize control over water. So what are some of those success stories that you can share and where might some of our more systemic solutions lie? Yeah, and that's something that has always given me hope. These are the people that I, when I feel gloomy about climate change or water issues, I think about the people I met around the world that were so wonderful. And one of them was Sundarlal Baguna, who I mentioned earlier. And I ended up dedicating my book to his wife. And she didn't even speak English, but Whenever he talked to me about what he was doing, he would always defer to his wife, which I thought was so sweet because he said she's the real leader. Just because she doesn't speak English doesn't mean that she shouldn't be recognized. And that's why I ended up devoting my, giving my book recognition to her instead of him. But I see these people like him who just fought for a hundred years and never gave up. You know, he would do these fasts that would last like a hundred days, just sitting on a dam in a tent. And for him, it was more like a spiritual journey in a way of connecting with water, of grieving the loss of water because his whole city was flooded to build a dam, but also developing a community. And his wife led the Chipko movement in India, which was a movement against colonial deforestation. And so people like that, they were the people who would, women would come out of their villages when loggers came and and hug the trees to keep them, to put their bodies between the chainsaw and the tree. And people like that, who struggled so much and suffered so much, give me so much inspiration. 
And they get small victories. The victories aren't, I don't think we can think of enormous victories, but they do get like the Chipko movement led to a halt on deforestation in the Himalayas for a period. And so things like this work, and they were inspired in turn by Gandhi. You know, he met Gandhi when he was quite young and he saw what Gandhi had done and decided to take on his methods. So it's, there's this whole genealogy of activists that to me is really fascinating and inspiring, like people with good ethics. And we're nearing the end of our main discussion, but what else do you have lingering in your mind about our water crises and our potential solutions that you'd like to share, if any? And what calls to action do you have for our listeners? You know, that's an interesting question, because at this point in my life, for the past four years, I really switched into more of a political mode because of Trump being elected and because of the rise of fascism in the country. And thinking about that and how it ties to water is, is also interesting because I think that people like Trump come out of these environmental crises or a perception of lack or a feeling that they don't really understand what's going on anymore. And that comes from, you know, climate change destabilizing the world in many ways. So I've been very interested in like understanding, coming back to what my dad did, which was fight fascism. My dad was in World War II and, and fought against Hitler. And so I grew up learning a lot about fascism. And I've been going back to that and taking a lot of inspiration from people involved in struggles against fascism. And I've also been interested in looking at fascist water architecture and what that looked like. So I think, you know, whatever you do, the struggle, the struggle can take many forms and it can be fluid, just like water. But I have great optimism, actually, because I, I've lived a life where I feel like I'm doing the right thing and I live without regret. And if you can get to my age and live without regret, I think it brings you quite a bit of peace. What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? One book that has been very profound for me recently is The Great Derangement by Amitav Ghosh. And it talks about how humans are deranged by their inability to face climate change. And it ties it back to colonial history as well. It's just a brilliant rethinking of climate change. 
And then one other book I have to mention is I just read Aspects of the New Right-Wing Extremism by Theodore Adorno, which looks into the type of people that are drawn to fascism. It was written in 1967, but I couldn't believe how much it still applies today. And it talks about how to contain those types of people. What do you tell yourself to stay motivated and inspired? I'm pretty motivated and inspired, I think, just by habit Mm -hmm. (laughs) at this point. I think that for me, what inspires me is being in nature, and it always has been. So right now I'm living on the sound in Seattle, and so I get to work and look at the water every day. And just looking at the water brings me happiness. And what makes you most hopeful for our planet and world at the moment? The resilience of nature. I think that, and I don't say that lightly, because I don't think that things are going to get better for us because nature is resilient. I think nature might decide they've had enough of us, but I've come to terms with that. And another book I'd like to recommend is called uh, Requiems for a Species by Clive Hamilton. It talks about how humans have this inability to face climate change in the same way they have the inability to face death, that it's there's just too much denial surrounding it when we look at it. It's too difficult. And he talks about going through the five stages of grief in thinking about what's happening to the planet now. And that book really helped me to process a lot of the feelings that I was having about climate change and and actually come to a much more hopeful place afterwards. Mm. So acceptance. Yeah. Um, Green Dreamer, we're wrapping up here, but if you want to learn more and stay updated on Karen's work and her several books, you can head to karenpiper.com and you can also follow her on Twitter at Piper K. Karen, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an honor to have you here. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Just see nature, just be in nature, learn the names of things. It opens up a whole new world to you. This marks the end of this episode of Green Dreamer. To support our independent media platform and to support us to bring more conversations like this to you, starting at a gift of $2, you can head to patreon.com slash green dreamer. Today's musical offering is Where We Belong by Inanna. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production intern is Spencer Carter. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Thank you so much for listening in and for your support. And I will catch you soon in the next episode.